listening to Metal Matters, the official weekly Gimme Metal podcast. As you all know, we're still doing this remotely. That it's conceivable that we would be able to do this in person again at some point relatively soon. So we'll see. That'd be nice, dude. You know, it's been a while. And, uh, you know, I'll probably just come down to Jersey for like a month, you know, just crash with you. And we'll do like six a day, you know. That's fine, dude. I mean, you know, I, I, it's just me down here and the cat. So uh, that's all good, you know. This week's Classic Records episode focuses on a band that is fairly obscure but very impactful and it's a band called circuits of power and the record that we're primarily going to talk about is their 1990 lp vices which came out on rca records it seems like a lot of bands that probably would have a career on the independent circuit were being signed by major labels yeah uh a lot of them i think kind of fell through the cracks too you know kind of like circus of power i mean uh you know, those guys referenced, you know, bands like uh, Four Horsemen and Raging Slat. Uh, there's a Psycho Flood from Hell, a fellow New York band. I think they played with a lot. And, uh, you know, those bands are great and uh, cool, interesting bands, but I think they kind of just, you know, I don't know. It's kind of fell through the cracks. They never achieved the same level of success as a lot of other uh, rock bands did around that time. They formed in 1986, disbanded in 1996, and started playing shows together again, uh, like around 2006, albeit with a different lineup. Vices is their second record. Their first record came out in 1988. It was self-titled. And um, that one I didn't even know about until sometime later. Oh, that's interesting. That self-titled was the first one I bought. Um, I probably bought it not, you know, that was my introduction to the band. It was probably like late in 88 or 89, that I bought it. And the reason I bought it, I was mainly into punk and hardcore at the time. I wasn't really into, you know, hard rock around that time. And I bought it because I seen their name mentioned on a thanks list. And I believe it was a Chrome Max record, but it may have been a Crumb Suckers record. And I seen the name Circus of Power. So I was at this little, like, mainly cassette tape, like record store place in the small town I lived in. And uh, I seen Circus of Power. So I bought it. Went out to the car, put it in, and I gotta be honest, I fucking hated it. <laughs> well, I mean, if you were into like punk and hardcore, that's definitely not the jam. You know, it's not where they no, they weren't a not band at all. Like that. I was not at all. I was very disappointed. I was like, wow, like I'm I'm not into this. You know, now I was saying it was maybe it was eighty nine. Say it was eighty nine, so like a year after it came out. And then it wasn't until around like nineteen ninety seven, nineteen ninety eight that I kind of rediscovered the band and I picked up vices and was like blown away by it. I really enjoyed it. And I remember like, why didn't I like this back in the day? But I just wasn't into that kind of stuff so much back then, you know? So let's uh, run through just some of the details about the record. Um, vices was released on March 12th, 1990 on RCA records, big label. Yeah. Not a bad first release, right? Yeah, definitely, man. Definitely. Uh, produced by Daniel Ray, and uh, this guy comes up as a pretty significant character in the band's career because he actually w- was the one who got them signed. 
and uh, right. uh, work with them. And uh, Daniel Ray, uh, his credits include, in addition to the you know the first two Circus of Power records, the Ramones, White Zombie, uh, D.D. King. You know that the uh, D.D. Ramone uh, rap album that came out. I don't know if you heard that one. <laughs> I have it. I never. I'm familiar with it. Yes. Yeah. You know, Raging Slab. Um, yep. A band that both you, I, you and I, and Al from uh, from Circus of Power love that band. That's cool. Hell yeah! And Adrenaline Overdose, a band that they flirted with mainstream leanings in a part of their career too. Yeah, uh, I, wow. I don't even recall that. I mean, I know Adrenaline OD, but I only know that as like a punk band. I never knew they kind of like uh, tried to go a little more mainstream later on. I never realized that. Yeah. So. Um, Daniel Ray had a lot to do with the band's uh, sound and them being signed. It was co-produced and mixed by Gary Lyons. We had a bunch of assistant engineers, Bob Smith, Michael Gilbert, Joe Pereira, Tom Cadley. And the mixing was done by Bryce Goggins, recorded at the Hit Factory in Times Square, NYC, which is like, that's like a, you know, a major place to record a record, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Legendary. uh, yeah, you know, you all kinds of people there. Mastered at Sterling Sound by George Marino. And um, I just want to run through uh, the lineup because, as we hinted at earlier, the band is still active. As a matter of fact, they have a new EP coming out. Actually, it's probably out right now. As we as you listen to this okay. episode, it's out. Yep. And, um, yeah, so the lineup on that early version of the band uh, was Al Mitchell on vocals, Ryan Mayer, drums, Ricky Beck Mahler, guitar, Gary Sunshine on guitar, and uh, Zowie on bass. Now, Zowie, a.k.a. Chris Vitale, is kind of a journeyman person. He's been in tons, he's played bass in tons of bands. You know, he's in Leeway, Orange 9mm, a bunch of different, you know, he's kind of like one of these guys. He's like the Rudy Sarzo of hardcore punk and dirty rock music you know what i mean so the track list is gates of love desire fire in the night two river highway vices don't drag me down last call rosie dr potion los angeles god hard temptation junkie girl simple man simple woman and um yeah that's 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 the the track list on the record and they're all very different too, by the way. All the songs. Yeah, that's another thing I love, man. And do you have a? Do you still have a physical copy of this? I do. I have a CD, compact. Disc. I don't. I'm holding uh, the vinyl, so I don't know. I, I was reading a little bit about some of the art and some of the details. Uh, at one point, I don't know if it was the, an original pressing of this record on vinyl or a CD. It came with a 20-page booklet. Is that what you have? No. Me neither. I have a an LP. Well, you know, the dust sleeve is like lime green and it has the lyrics. But what's interesting, man, is I don't know if the CD has this. Every song has its own image, like for artwork. Uh, okay, it's cool, man. It's uh, Every song has the lyrics, then it has little images that remind me, some of them anyway, remind me a lot of Raymond Pettibon, oh, the you know okay. famous Black Flag artist. And they were done by a guy uh, called John Eater who I know nothing about, but it's really cool, man. Like, you know, Gates of Love has this image of like a devil's head with these gates. And then like Two River Highway has like this image. It's very petty bond, this image of a Two River Highway. It's like these two guys riding motorcycles. 
Um, it's done in that same style uh, for anyone who's familiar with Raymond Pettibond. If you're not, check out his art. is incredible. I got into them when Vices came out because I saw the video on Headbangers Ball. I had been into the cult in Danzig in like the, from like 87 onward. And that's right. what got me interested in hard rock again. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, Guns N' Roses, definitely. But, you know, I, I even though Guns N' Roses were different, I just associated L.A. with, like, that candy-ass, like, hair metal. Uh, sure. You know, dudes with the high voices and uh, dressed like women, you know, which is fine. You know, it's not my cup of tea, man, you know. By and large, there was too many bands that were mining that same vein. And right. It got real old for me, and I never really got into it. I mean, I actually got to listen to Motley Crue after they were, like, a, a thing. Like, I went back and listened to some of their songs, and I was like, oh, yeah, a couple of this, some of the stuff's okay. Uh, first, first two records are good, man. I like, I like uh, Too Fast for Love, Shout Out the Devil, man. I, I think those records are pretty good, but it does, those are a little harder than, like, what that shit turned, out, it turned into. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, you know, so right or wrong, and, and I do acknowledge uh, Appetite for Destruction as an important record. Right or wrong, I always associated them with L.A. because they were a Hollywood band. You know, but, but when The Cult put out Electric and Danzig, you know, the first Danzig record came out and, and the second Danzig record came out, I was like, oh, wow, you know, like hard rock music, which I had grown up listening to, Zeppelin and Sabbath and all that stuff, you know, Rainbow, whatever, had uh, has... Is an is is a can be visualized in a brand new way to incorporate all this other stuff that I dug from the you know the last decade of being Black Flag and like Sam Hain and stuff like that, right? And st- combining that with like ACDC and all these other influences, and that's what where I landed in when I saw that Vice's video on Headbangers Ball, and I was like, yeah, this is a band that I really should check out and and sounds like it's right up my alley based on some of the stuff I've been listening to. Yeah. That, yeah. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, that, you know, I kind of, I was into hard rock and stuff when I was a kid and then, you know, I got into punk and hardcore and just kind of like, you know, I still, I still dug dancing, but there was that connection obviously to the misfits and Sam Hain, who I'm a huge fan of. And I did dig the call and Guns N' Roses appetite when it came out, but kind of just, I didn't really, really get into it. You know, I was so immersed in the hardcore punk world and stuff, man. It wasn't until it was like 1997, 98 is when I kind of started to go back. And, and I guess I was discovering the band Caius, who I'm a huge fan of. Like, I knew of them, I never really listened to them, and then I got turned on to them, and then that just led me back down the road to get kind of more into traditional rock music, you know? And uh, I remember I was getting set to go on this, like, 10-day camping trip, and uh, I went to a flea market, which we, you know, we brought up the flea market scene on this podcast before, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, this guy was selling a bunch of cassettes for, like, a dollar. And uh, I got from him, uh, Circus of Power of Vices was one of the ones I got, along with two different Raging Slab cassettes and just a bunch of other, like, old Maiden and ACDC and stuff. And along with, like, some Kaya stuff and like, the first Queens of the Stone Age record early Fu Manchu record. That was like the soundtrack for the 10 days. I was like out, up in the woods in New Hampshire camping. And that was like when I really fell in love with this album with the uh, Circus of Power of Vices, man. Like we just, we ran that thing over and over and over and over. And 
it actually had a big influence, man, on me personally, like as a musician, you know, I was, uh, doing the band cable at the time, which, you know, I'm still kind of doing, but, uh, we were getting ready to start writing our album, our uh, third album called Northern Failures. And that record for us took a pretty big turn. And like, there's just more riffs. It's more like rock. It's not as much like noisy, like punk kind of stuff. And I think this record had a lot to do with that. You know, it was kind of like my re uh, introduction back into like just riff based stuff, man. So like, that's how I got into Vices, and it's a real important record for me, man, because I feel like it kind of shaped a lot of the music I make going forward, even though no bands I ever do sound like Circus of Power, but there was definitely a big influence there for me. Exactly, you know, and uh, you know what's cool is I actually had the opportunity to speak to Al uh, Mitchell, the, the singer, and, you know, the sole uh, remaining member of the band, about the band, about what they're doing, what he's doing now with with the newer lineup, and about some of the old days, you know, and, and recording Vices and uh, New York in the '80s and that kind of stuff. Right. So, um, so you know, Al originally is not a native New Yorker, like many people, you know, and um, you know he uh, he moved to New York and then started the band. So here's some of the stuff that Al's got to say about uh, New York City in the '80s. Well, the 80s were good. <laughs> That's when I moved to New York was in 1980. And, and look, it was, it was, you know, I was a kid from Florida, 20-year-old kid from Florida moving up there, you know, uh, in my surfing baggies, in my white shirt, in my suntan. You know, I was like a target as soon as I moved into that. The neighborhoods I was living in were serious, you know, gang-ridden neighborhoods where the rent was super cheap, though, you know. And you was living around a lot of interesting people. Um, and you'd see Andy Warhol in the street. You'd see Richard Hell, uh, Johnny Thunders, and, and, you know, the people in that neighborhood. Um, and it was great. I mean, it was dangerous. But like, I was a kid, man. I was, you know, just trying to... Uh, it was a, a wonderland to me, of good and bad, you know. But, like, um, you learn to defend yourself and walk walk the walk, you know, once you get there. But my point is, there was a lot of great art coming out of there and a lot of great music and actors and uh, activists and all kinds of interesting people. Whereas now, it's like it's like walking through, it's like a college town now, you know? At least the Lower East Side, you know? Um, over the last couple of months, I've heard some horror stories about all the shootings and stuff that was going on. So I don't, I don't know the old place like I used to. But it, it, during the 80s, New York was an amazing place to live. Yeah, I mean, like, brought me up there, you know. I, I heard, um, I was down in Florida, and then we heard, like, the Bad Brains record and Minor Threat. And I was like, I'm going up there, man, you know. <laughs> I'm not staying down here. I'm going up there. And, um, yeah, I was into the Heartbreakers, Johnny Thunders, and, you know, all the punk rock stuff. And, um you know, that's where I wanted to be. You know, you brought up like, you know, how it was a little bit, you know, New York was kind of crazy back then, but like, he seemed to really embrace it. You know I mean? He was just like so stoked about it. He's like, yeah, that's what, you know, it was awesome. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that was the thing. I mean, when I was a, a kid, you know, my first, my first uh, exploration into New York city, I was, I think 16 or, I mean, on my own, I went down there with my dad a couple of times to go see like baseball games and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, and then we had a school trip, things like that, to, like, the museums and all that. But my first, like, solo adventures in New York, I was, like, 16. And 
Uh, it was scary and dangerous for sure uh, going into the village. But I also saw how awesome it was too. But I was too right. much. Yeah, I, I wasn't moving. You know, I wasn't uprooting myself at that age in high school, <laughs> you know, quitting school and like going to live on the streets or anything like that. So, right. But, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I have to say, man, that's, that's true. You know, I mean, New York is a very different place. And, um, you know, Al talks a little bit about the shows, like where shows happen. Cause, um, you know, there was, everyone thinks about, CBGBs and like Lemoore's as like the hardcore Mecca and the metal Mecca that everyone talks about seeing Metallica at Lemoore's and all this stuff. Right. But, uh, but you know, there was a, uh, a whole scene of bands in the eighties that were doing this kind of like hard rock sleaze rock, you know, music. And, um, sure. you know, and Al goes into some of that stuff too, about there's like a, you know, the scene and, you know, and this place called the Lismore lounge, which all that was, I guess, the CBs of that scene. It wasn't CBs, and it wasn't really in Lemoore's. Um, it was a place called Lismore Lounge on Second Avenue, uh, and it was this dingy place that used to be like a, uh, it was a Puerto Rican kind of bar before. Like, and then, um, it, you know, somebody somebody bought it and just kind of left the decor up and turned it into a rock and roll club, and. Um, that's where like us and slab played and cycle sluts from hell played and people that came through town that were like John Spencer, um, before he got the blues explosion played there. Um, stuff like that, not so much metal stuff, but rock and roll, you know, um, the Lemoore's was more straight up metal, uh, which is, you know, also great. Yeah. But, uh, Lismar was like, you, you get all kind of warrior soul played Lismar and, also, and it was that whole crew was, was doing the Lismar thing, um, and the little local band. It was a great club. It was like uh, upstairs and downstairs, small place, and it was um, insane in there. <laughs> basically, uh, my, our the drummer that we were talking about before, he was a bouncer, uh, Ryan, <laughs> at the door, and uh, the cycle slut girls were uh, the bartenders. So, I mean, you can imagine what went on and then um it just got the place got really rough man it, there's there's a lot of violence and things that went down in there and it ended up closing but it's one of those things is it just it was it, it was like a, a shooting star you know it it came and burned super brightly for a short time and then went away and we all kind of went wow and then like later on you know at the time you don't really care that much but then when you look back on it later on in the years you're like wow that was the place man for for a while yeah, some of those bands, you know, that was some of the bands from that era, you know, like Smash, Gladys. Like, I don't know if you heard of some of these bands. Of course. I've uh, heard of them, but yeah. Yeah, Psycho Sluts from Hell, who uh, a member of that band is in Godin, a band that you and I both like. Oh, um, you're right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah of course. Yep. Um, there's another band called Warrior Soul that was sort of like, they they changed, I, I, I loosely put them in that in that category, but they they were like a little bit I would say broader in what they did musically. I'm not super familiar with that. I'm just, I know the name, I've heard the name, you know, forever. And I'm not super familiar with any of their music. I've never seen them. I never owned any of their albums, but I, you know, some friends of mine kind of rep them quite a bit, dig them. And you know, the other thing was the New York connection with a uh, circus of power. And I guess some people could argue like you just apply these lyrics to LA or Chicago. 
Chicago or, or wherever, but like I really feel like the the lyrics on Vices and some of the songs and the subject matter uh, just fits that. I just feel like I can like, visualize the songs like as being 80s in New York or you know early 90s in New York. It just it just I don't know. This, this, when I listen to this record, man, it just oozes that to me, like New York City back then, you know. Yeah, it definitely has more of a street sound to it. You know what I mean? And, um, you know, and there, like I said, there was like a little scene of bands. I mean, even later on, there was like a lot of blues in, in the sort of underground, the non-metal, non-punk like underground in New York. If you think about bands like Surgery and like John Spencer Blues Explosion, um, uh, you know, Pussy Galore, like stuff like that. I always, from day one of checking the band out, just looking at the artwork and stuff, I always knew there was like this deep biker connection. Yeah, yeah. You know, I just, I always wondered how deep that that connection goes. Because I know, you know, looking up some of the history of their touring and stuff like that, uh, I know they they played a lot of like biker events. And they were actually offered to play um, Sturgis, South Dakota. Like, I guess that's, that's like the world's biggest biker event, you know? Um, and I guess they couldn't do it for whatever reason, scheduling reasons or something. You know, this was when they had reformed. But I know, like, so, you know, there's a lot of pictures on some of their records and stuff, like biker dudes. And that Lismar Lounge place, I guess, had, had like a biker tie-in, maybe some Hell's Angels tie-in and stuff like that. So I was just curious, like, how deep that ran with those guys, you know? Yeah, the Lismar Lounge wasn't too far away from the um, Hell's Angels uh, clubhouse either, so... Yeah, you know, that's, that's very well could be. Yeah, when I got a little older and started going to New York, uh, you know, on, on a fairly regular basis to see these and see shows and stuff like that, um, I remember I always see the Hell, Hell's Angels like rolling through the Lower East Side. It was always like, just kind of intense, man. You know, like all those fucking Hell, Hell's Angels, like biker guys, like rolling through like the Lower East Side. It was just like so menacing. You know, it's different than like, I see that shit out where I live too. And it's like, no big deal. Oh, it's a bunch of motorcycle dudes on the highway. Hell's Angels dudes. Like, that's crazy, you know? But, like, it put them in that environment, dude. It just seems like there's so much more that could go wrong, you know? And, uh, you know, this is what Al had to say about the classic lineup and um, just the overall uh, Circus of Power sound. Uh, me and the guitar player were had come up from Florida. And um, a lot of people from Miami came up to, went up to New York. You know, uh, kind of uh, uh, made their way up to New York. So, uh, you know, I was hang hanging out in a Mexican bar, getting drunk on tequila, and you know, the, the guitar player was, there. I was like, let's do this. I was hanging out at that, at that uh, record store I was telling you about. I was like, let's do this rock and roll band because we were in the punk rock and, and rock and roll and, you know, all kinds of stuff in, you know, old school country and all that, all that good stuff. But we, um, so we threw it together and, it was one of those, you know, you. it's like you get in a bunch of bands and then you get in this one band where it's like, oh, okay, this is it. You know, this is the chemistry that, that you know, uh, the, the great bands had. If you look at the great rock and roll bands, the chemists like Black Sabbath or Led Zeppelin, every guy in the band is unreal. The drummer's great, the bass player's great, the guitar player's great, the singer's great, you know. And in our case, we, we were able to get a bunch of guys who, you know, thought the same way and, and really, I mean, we were at our best the first couple of years. I don't know what would have happened if we would have stayed together or not. It's hard to say. A lot of the, I mean, what what took off was the scene in L.A. And, you know, um, uh, I loved the Four Horsemen from that era. I think that band was great. 
and uh, junkyard and um, and Guns N' Roses. And there was still some good stuff happening. I remember when things started to shift. I was hanging out at this record store on Second on Second Avenue called Free Being, and I would hang out there because the guy that owned the place flew over to England every week, every week, and brought back records on the weekends. You know, and um, so that was kind of the latest thing. What was going on over there? And he was bringing over Zodiac Mind Warp. Uh, 45s and, and records and uh and i was like wow this is new this is fresh this is awesome and the cult put out electric and and guns and roses came out so there was this great great time for a few years you know and um then it started changing and that's that's fine too the 80s was like the heyday of you know the, the industry signing of bands it was um you know i remember during the 80s the independent scene was very independent and very separate. You know what I mean? So it was very rare for um, a band to have a career on like SST records and then go to work with a major label. You know, the only band that comes to mind was Soundgarden. You know what I mean? Like they put out records on SST and singles on Sub Pop and then boom, they're on a major. But that was unusual. That was an unusual thing I felt. Yeah, definitely, man. I mean, there was a you know, there's a few others. I think Dinosaur Jr., Sonic Youth. Yeah. But you know, it's still, it was it was an unusual thing for sure. And then like a lot of bands back then, if you went to work for the major, you had to deal with the quote unquote sellout backlash. You know. And in this scene, they probably did not have a backlash like that. Like if you're like a rock, we're a rock and roll band. We're, we're not trying to like uh, you know save the right. whales or you know we don't have any like political agendas or anything we were just about like hard rock and i think that uh the model of being guns and roses and the success of that type of thing you know i think was like this sort of gateway to think that you had it that there could be a possible career as a major label recording artist and uh right what i think is cool is like just talking to al he doesn't seem very uh bitter about the and I, I don't I want to put this in um uh, you know I don't know how how to say this in the most delicate way but you know the sort of the the success did not find them the way that it found bands like Guns and Roses and Motley Crue and and uh, Alice and Chains and that sort of stuff you know what I mean and um, I think that right. initially it probably was uh, painful but. You know, he also looks back and he says, well, you know, we didn't have our shit together. There's like, you know, issues with drugs and, you know, being young, young men and, and, uh, right. Right. Yeah. Not having to work a day job, I believe, you know, having enough money probably coming from RCA and, and probably touring as well. You know, you just left your own devices a little bit, man. And, uh, you know, having a good time and, a little bit of drinking, a little bit of drugs, probably turns into a lot of a little bit of drinking, <laughs> a lot of drinking and a lot of drugs. And you know, I think this happened to a lot of bands, and probably still does to some extent. But uh, you know, and he he alludes to that, like how much respect he has for bands that can stay together for twenty, thirty, forty years. You know, um, you know, dude, you've been in bands your whole life, as have I. Being in a band is difficult, which he also alludes to that. It's like having five girlfriends or whatever he said. You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it seems like, yeah, it's unfortunate, you know, it seems like when I went back and did a little research on like the, their touring, 
I wish I had wrote the name down. There's a website that has, I think they claim to have every show the band ever played listed and most of the tour dates, if not all of them, along with a lot of cool flyers and tour posters and stuff too. Um, I'll try to go back and find it and then I'll, you know, I'll post it in the comments when this episode goes up or whatever. Right. right on, um, man. But you know, th- man, they, to me, I know he says like, you know, a lot of the tours weren't great and I don't know what context he says that it, it meant by that because maybe the tours just didn't, you know, work great for them, but it seems like on paper, like just looking quick, man, you know, they did that huge uh, European tour with black Sabbath, um, for the tier album by Sabbath, which is obviously not, you know, <laughs> the heyday of black Sabbath. Um, but then, you know, they, they did a U.S. tour with TSOL, um, which is pretty cool. Uh, Faith No More, which is pretty cool. They did a, a Japanese tour in 1989, uh, U.S. tour with Brunt Truck in 93, uh, tour with Blue Oyster Cult, U.S. tour with Blue Oyster Cult. That's pretty sick. Yeah, in 88, I believe that was. And then, you know, a lot of shows uh, with Danzig, some shows with Iggy Pop and Jane's Addiction, The Ramones, The Dead Boys. So, like, you know, and then there's the tour that Al talked about as being his favorite with Alice in Chains and Masters of Reality, which was also, uh, you know, a really cool bill. I-, I love all three of those bands. So, you know, they put the work in. It cer- certainly seems like they put the work in. I just think maybe the success caught up with them a little too quick, unfortunately, you know. Yeah, and this is what Al had to say about those tours. Yeah, and also uh, a very uh, interesting Lane Staley uh, anecdote. Yeah, well, we got we got shitty tours. All the, we never got a good tour. You know, we went on. We were going to go on. Uh, we started with Alice in Chains and um, Masters of Reality. That was the best bill we ever got on. And that was supposed to go for about thirteen shows. And um, I don't know if you've heard of Masters of Reality. They're great. Okay. Well, they. Yeah, well, they were also playing the Lismore Lounge, the place I was telling you about at that time. You know, nobody knew about it, but we did. And because uh, Chris Goss is so great. Chris Goss is the guy uh, that produced um, Queens and Stone Age records. The really great one, uh, uh, Restricted, the blue and white one. Um, and he did some other work with them. I think he did the red record, too. So Chris Goss is the guy. He pretty much is Masters of Reality. So when we played with them... Ginger Baker from Cream was playing drums for uh, uh, Masters of Reality. So that was, you know, if you're a musician, uh, then it's like, oh, great. I get to watch somebody incredible tonight, you know, play drums. But uh, that tour only lasted two shows. And Lane was in a bad way, you know. He was in a bad, bad way. And um, he, he just lost it and, you know, couldn't wasn't able to perform anymore. Um and so it fizzled out after two shows. I'll tell you a quick Lane story, which is really pretty wild. I was on their tour bus one night, and they were trying to keep Lane straight, you know, which is like good luck because if you're, you know, an old druggie like me or us, you know, back in those days, you'll find a way to get it, man. You know, I mean, I don't care if the guy's seven feet tall, four hundred pounds, that's guarding you. You will find a way to get drugs if you want them or booze or whatever you need. So, anyways, I was on the tour bus in the back and, and everyone's getting wasted, hanging out, blah, blah, blah. And Lane went into his pocket and pulled out like a handful of, of every color pill I've ever seen in my life. You know, like I had, had like 30 or 40 of them. I was like, dude, I'm good, man. But like rock on, do what, do what you want to do, you know? And so he sat down with, you know what an Etch-a-Sketch is from the sixties? 
Okay, so we sat down for any of your listeners that are not, uh, you know, uh, that are over, <laughs> like in between your twenties and fifties. You might you you might want to Google that, but they're really cool etch a sketch. Um, these, these these toys that were for kids in the sixties, where you turn these two dials, and they would make this this pencil mark go across the screen, the screen, so you could you know sort of create these weird drawings, but all in a linear way. You could it could like bend the curve or anything. Anyways. So he sits down with this thing, and I see him, you know, fucking around with it and doing this, doing that. And about 15 minutes later, he gets up. He could barely stand. He's like, I'm about to fall over. And he hands me the Etch-A-Sketch. It's a, a, perfect, a perfect drawing of me as Jesus Christ. But, like, with the quality of, like, you know, Michelangelo or, you know, like, Da Vinci. So just beautiful artwork. And I was like... And Jerry looked at me and nodded his head. And I was like, wow. You know, I mean, he, he kind of, he had a gift, you know. Uh, obviously a great singer, too. You know, you got to hand it to Sabbath, too, man. Like, in um, in the way that Tony Iommi just never fucking gave up, man. That's because there's all those records, like Tear, you know, Headless Cross, like all these records that came out. Yeah, forbidden. The, yeah, for, yeah, that's another one, man. Like, I, I, I have... Not not vinyl, but I have all the records, you know. And uh, so you know, it's not like they're good per se, but I can listen to some some of it. You know what I mean? And appreciate that era of the band. You know what I mean? Yeah, man. Yeah, I. To me, there's a lot to be said for people who don't give up, man, or who get knocked down and get off the mat and get back up and like you know maybe it's not those records in that time of the band wasn't obviously Sabbath's best material, you know? Maybe there's some people that think it is, you know? I don't know. There's something for everybody in there, but I respect that, man. Like, there's bands that I hold, like, close in my own life, like a band like Today Is The Day. I mean, they, you know, they, I don't, their career is crazy. Like, the amount of people have come in and out of that band, different drummers, different bass players, different record labels. But like Steve Austin, the main guy behind that band, the driving force, he just keeps it going, man. A lot like I only did with Sabbath, you know? And like some people might not like some of their mid or later material or think it's inferior or whatever, but I respect that, man, you know? Hell, dude, in a lot of ways, I try to do that with, with my own band, you know? So yeah. I, res I respect that. Yeah, definitely. And, and also keep in mind, too, that... Um during this era, Sabbath wasn't playing like the gigantic arenas that they were, that they are They are in the last few years and what they were in the 70s. You know, I remember right. uh, Sabbath, when I lived in Boston, uh, and I might have been on the Headless Cross tour, if, I don't, if I'm remembering correctly. They played in, uh, at the, the, uh, the Orpheum Theater in, in Boston, right. which that's like... I don't know. If I, I remember that being like maybe a two thousand square foot, uh, to yeah, like a two thousand person place. You know, right. not a very big place. That'd be a sick place for me or you to play, and but like you know, yeah. for them, it's like a huge step down. You know. Yeah, totally. You know, and it was well, uh, a weird time for them. You know. Yeah, that Tear album that they were on that you know that Circus did that tour with them. It was released in August of nineteen ninety. So. You know, by the time that came out, the touring cycle was in full swing, man. You know, what's knocking at the door is the grunge movement. And pretty much the death knell of heavy metal and hard rock and on a, and on a major stage. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
So it was a tough time. You know, it's not like you have touring with Sabbath is fucking cool no matter what, you know, incarnation or what year or whatever. But still, it wasn't like they were talk, uh, touring with Sabbath on volume four. You know? <laughs> That's true. They're playing arenas and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, just on a personal level for me, once, you know, we were getting ready to do this episode, I, I really dug into the first record a lot. Like I was saying, I found that record years after Vices came out. And right. I went back to it. And I, I, I've been, it's been on like nonstop rotation right now, uh, the, the first album. Yeah, well, you know, I told you my little story about my, <laughs> I haven't gone back to it too, you know, and I hadn't really gone back to it much since I really uh, got into Vices back in 1998 or whatever. Um, but I've dug into it quite a bit this week too, man, and it, it is great. And, it, you know, track three on that record, Call of the Wild, might be one of my favorite songs by the band period and uh for everyone who's interested if you go on youtube and type in uh circus of power called a wild on the morton downey jr show <laughs> anyone who's old like me and mike probably remembers the morton downey jr show um controversial talk show host i don't even know how to describe morton downey jr mike uh but <laughs> 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 like an interesting guy uh so, you know, if I read about this first and I was able to find it on YouTube, but when I read about it, it said they performed two songs on the Morton Downey Jr. show. I guess it was an episode on heavy metal. And uh, i never seen that episode, but I would hope I can go back and find the full episode. But it said they played two songs, Call of the Wild and Letter Home, which are both Letters Home, both from the first album. And it said Ace Freely was featured on lead guitar. <laughs> so... Uh that's like the sickest thing I ever heard, man. That's can you imagine how cool that must be? But I don't think it happened because <laughs> when I when I watched the Call of the Wild video, which is the I couldn't find the video for Letter Home of them playing, but Call of the Wild's up on YouTube, and I don't see Ace Freely, man. So I don't know what that's about, but it's still an awesome performance, and that's a killer song, you know, from the first album. And so yeah, like you, I've gone back and revisited the first album quite a bit this week, man, and it, it it's just killer, dude. I mean, it's great, you know, that I hear all that stuff, like, you know, the cult and Danzig and uh, all the stuff we're referencing right from the beginning. And I think me and you were just having a personal conversation a couple of weeks ago or exchanging texts about it. And uh, you mentioned TSOL. Oh, yeah, totally, man. Yeah. Uh, and then I found out when I was doing some research that they did a 1990 tour with TSOL, which I thought was cool. I know I don't remember that tour happening back in the day or anything, so. You know, it's cool. It all kind of it all kind of makes sense when you start peeling back the layers, you know. Well, the thing about TSOL as well, I mean, around that era especially, is they were that was the post Jack Grisham era, obviously. And right. um, they they put out a couple of good records, and um, then they delved hard into like the you know the hair metal, uh, yes, you know, hard rock world, which wasn't, in my opinion, the best look for them. But that was probably the tour that that. Um, Circus of Power did was like somewhere around that era. Yeah, I think that's true because I mean, I, uh, unpopular opinion. My favorite TSOL records are without Jack Grisham, even yeah. though I love Jack Grisham and the material he did with them. Change today and dance with I'm not dance with me. No, change today and revenge are my two favorites, and those are two records without Jack Grisham. 
But uh, yes, after after those two records, man, they went hard, like you said, into the hair metal shit. I can't remember the name of those records. I think it's a couple of them. It's like another hit and run or something like that, like some real sassy. Yeah, man, like, the fucking hair is teased out. Yeah. It looks like a Poison record or something, man. Not yeah. into it. I, I gave it, I just revisited that like last year with hopes that I'd like, find something in it like I did when I revisited Circus of Power. Didn't. Didn't have the same thing. <laughs> the uh, revenge record is is great. I love that album. Oh, I love it, dude. I love I love Change Today too, man. I think Revenge. Those are my two favorites. Revenge and Change Today. I think are both amazing records, man. You know those great, those two but, records uh, were interesting because they had like uh, the transition, though. You know what I mean? It was like they were like a, a punk band, hardcore band, L.A. hardcore, uh, and then they were there was almost like. Um, I would say almost like a gun club kind of thing going on on Revenge. Yeah, like, like a, a death rock. Like a death rock, like like bluesy death rock kind of vibe. And then yeah. they just went full on like hair, you know, later after after that. Yeah, I, I, I dig all the versions of that band, but the hair version, I, I'm all set with that version. Yeah. Yeah. It does, just doesn't, it doesn't work. It doesn't have the same effect. But with that me. said, on, on the, the debut album, Circus of Power debut, uh, there, I feel like there's even elements of that too. Like the song "In the Wind" is like that has like this kind of, and I remember that period of time too, um, where there were there was a lot of English bands, like the Cult, for example, that were in that post-punk world that were becoming harder-edged and incorporating like AC/DC and Zeppelin into their sound. Right. And they made some. They, there's a lot of those bands made some good music that was like this weird crossover of like death rock and hard rock music. And I feel like the first circuits of power record has elements of that. Like there's definitely like some hard rock and tracks on that record, you know, like white trash queen and all that stuff. Yeah. Motor motor. And, uh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. No, there was like the mission. Like that was another band that was like a post punk band. They had, and they had like a hard rock album. And then there was, this other band that I actually saw live, I never owned any of their records. And I went to see them because I was accompanying this chick and uh, she wanted to go. And I, they were called Balam and the Angel. And I don't really know that much about them other than that. But I do know that prior to that tour that they did in the States, they were, they were like, you know, wearing like uh, Paisley, you know, and stuff like that. And... You know what I mean? <laughs> right. And, and then right. now, now, then on that tour, they had some you know dudes in like no shirt and like a leather pants and like cowboy boots and you know they all had like right, long right, hair right. and sunglasses and stuff like that. You know, leather jackets. So, <laughs> but uh, that weird juxtaposition made a lot of pretty cool music. You know, and I'm not saying that anything about Circus of Power is like derivative, but I feel like just because of the um, you know, the influences, like you talk to this, you talk to Al and he's into all kinds of stuff and the band. Right. And they're into like hard rock and they're into like all these things. And they just sort of found their place within the music, you know? Yeah, man. I, yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, and then being in all kinds of stuff, you know, like, you know, like Al said, moving up to Florida because he heard the bad brains of minor threat. I was like, shit, I got to go to up there, like a New York area. But like, he, he also said something, dude, I, I fucking absolutely love because this is like an age old argument I have uh friends or whatever people it's like you know punk rock dude started in the united states okay yeah, it started right. it started in detroit and 
you know, you can argue New York with the Ramones, but I always say the Stooges MC5, okay? And then you get these fucking people who want to argue the Sex Pistols with you. And, and, I, <laughs> and Al, I believe, you know, he, he took a little, nice little shot at Johnny Rod. I think he made a statement about punk rock started in the U.S. with the Stooges, and he's like, yeah, unless you ask Johnny Rod. You know? And don't get me wrong, I'm a, I'm a pretty big fan of Pill, like, you know, his post-Sex Pistols band. I like the first, the first couple Pill records are awesome. But, you know, fuck Johnny Rotten, dude. That guy needs to sh- shut his fucking mouth. He's just an idiot. No, I agree. And, uh, I mean, you got you to gotta put it, things in perspective that the Sex Pistols started because there's, like, a dude who owned a clothing store wanted to put together a band, really. Right. You know, well, I was going to say, they were, they were the first band. They were the first something. They were the first boy band, not the first punk band. So, you know, fuck him, dude. And this is what Al's got to say about the first record. So it's going to cut some of this in here with him. And, uh, you know, get his ideas about that. Yeah. So in the years since their first breakup, Al stayed busy. Like, he was doing a bunch of stuff. And, um, you know, he has a book that just came out, which I thought, you know, without knowing that in advance... I had a suspicion that this guy was a bit of a writer just based on the lyrics. Yeah, I could see that too, man, for sure. You know, definitely so, could see that. Yeah, you know. So here's it. I'll talk a little bit about his uh, forthcoming, or actually, the book is available right now. Yeah. Well, it's this book about this insane um, girl. Uh, it's ba- it's mostly based on this one girl that I was uh, into. And then a couple of others' personalities kind of crept in there, and I ended up creating sort of a, a mishmash of characters, this girl named Carrie. Um, and it's an intense love story with lots of booze and sex and violence and car crashes and cops and cuts on the forehead and... Um, rolling around in blood in the bedroom floor and all this crazy stuff. But really what it is is this intense love story between two people. And um book came out great. People love it. So I'm trying to trying to um keep keep that rolling. But anyway, so the way to get it is to friend me on Facebook. You don't have to be my friend, but you got you gotta friend me on Facebook. Uh it's Al Mitchell, not Alex Mitchell, it's Al Mitchell. And if you if you friend me, then um, it's it's through PayPal and uh, and all that stuff. You get a signed copy, so um, and people will love it. It's even if you don't read, um, you like you like it. I wrote a book for people that don't read. Randy, you have a bit of a personal connection to the band, uh, in a way. Uh, yeah, well, maybe not the band. More so, they're the the record label they've been working with on the last couple of releases, uh, Noise in the Attic Records. Um, interesting, like. You know, when I started to come back around to the hard rock stuff, like I said earlier, I kind of discovered Caius and stuff like that, man. I was hitting up a record store here in Connecticut, down in Waterbury, Connecticut, called Phoenix Records, which existed for many, many, many years. And other than Trash American Style, this was probably the second most important record store for me, like shaping, you know, the music I would listen to and go on to make and stuff. Uh the owner of the store is uh, this guy named Carl, and the guy who worked there, uh, Damon Marzano. Uh, I became pretty close to both those guys. They turned me on to a lot of really great hard rock music, and uh, you know, I believe that when I my 
fell in love with Circus of Power was, you know, buying those CDs from those guys and Raging Slab and Caius and all this great, like, hard rock and stuff in, like, the late 90s when I kind of really dove back into that stuff. And uh, Damon went on to form uh, Noise in the Attic Records, who put out uh, the 2017 Circus of Power record called Four and the new EP that's available now, Process of Illumination. So it's really cool to kind of connect those dots, you know, and I stay in touch with both those guys, Carl and Damon. Um, so it was really cool to find out that Damon was kind of behind uh, the resurrection sort of, of Circus of Power. You know, I mean, it was, it was pretty cool. Yeah, no, that's awesome, man. And uh, yeah, I'm glad to see that they're still out there, man. It's, um, I know you and I were listening to the, the back, you know, back when uh, 4 came out. Um, right. We spent a lot of time driving back and forth to New Jersey for for practice, and that's right. when we both uh, discovered the band still existed, which I thought was cool. I think th- I think when that's when we discovered like our mutual love for Circus of Power too, man. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> I think those those eight hour car rides to band practice, man. We discovered a lot of the shit that we're both into. You know, it kind of like fuels a lot of these episodes that we do. You know. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Anything else? Or should we wrap this up? Yeah, well, I just want to mention, too, like we referenced Danzig a lot when talking about, uh, you know, Circus of Power and this Vices album. And it really struck me, actually, this morning, I got up early and took a drive and, you know, threw Vices on one last time before we did this. And the song Los Angeles came on. And it really hit me, man. That sounds like it could be a Danzig song. Like, I don't know if you remember that song off the top of your head. But, I mean, it literally... Yeah, it's like, uh, it's really cool. And then, you know, the only other thing I wanted to throw out there real quick was uh, from the first album, there's a song called Machine. Uh, That album appeared in the movie The Burbs. Remember that movie? I do. I didn't realize that was in there, though. There's a scene where Corey Feldman is like jamming out playing air guitar. And it's the intro to the song Machine from the self-titled Circus Power Records. I thought that was pretty funny. (laughs) Damn. I didn't, I didn't realize that at all. Yeah, man. I, you know, I, I don't have everything else, man. That's pretty much it. This was cool, really cool doing this episode. It, it was important to me. I was really psyched that, you know, you were down with this record and this band. And uh, I never really thought I'd get a chance to, like, express how much I'm, I'm into this record and this band. You know, I think very important band that uh, people who are in the hard rock, heavy metal, any of that kind of stuff, if, if this band is one you've checked out, you should make it a point to check out Circus of Power, man. They're a very important, cool band. Thanks for listening, guys. And to take us out of this episode, I'm going to have Al give us a little plug for what's going on in his world. Take care, everyone. Buy my new book. It's called Carrie, Confessions to a Dead Lover. It's the greatest book written this year. And um, the other thing is by Process of Illumination, our six-pack of songs that will get you drunk on rock and roll. And that's coming out on Noise in the Attic Records any day now to get in touch with me about these things al mitchell on facebook not alex mitchell but al mitchell that's how you get the book and that's how i'll steer you in the direction of our ep which you're going to love too and god love you see you later That's it for this week's episode of Metal Matters, an official Gimme Metal podcast. Tune in next week and see what we have in store for you. 
This show is available on all streaming platforms, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, etc. Also, be sure to check out Gimme Metal, streaming on the web, iOS, or Android. For one of the best metal communities, exclusive merch, interviews, and so much more. I'll catch you guys next week. Take care. Yeah.